there's a difference. They know. I don't worry about them desisting or whatever word you want to call it, retransitioning or changing their mind. Or I think those are the kids where I am feeling most comfortable that this is what they are and, and this is what we need to do to affirm them. Hey, y'all. I'm so excited to be here with you today. So many of you have reached out and asked, when are you going to do medical? And today is the day. Well, today's the day that we start it. We're going to start right where kids start when they come out young and go from there. There's so much misinformation out there on this subject. It's no wonder parents are so confused about it. I can't tell you how many times parents have said to me, this would be so much easier to get on board with if we didn't have to do anything medical. No parent wants to navigate any part of the medical system for their child beyond well-child checkups. It's just extra work in an already very demanding job. We want to do as little damage as possible, and many parents see medical interventions for transition as a recipe for potential damage. You're listening to Camp Wildheart, your guide for raising a transgender child and nurturing an affirming family. I'm your host, Mackenzie Dunham. The truth is, When you have a transgender child, the medical stuff is a part of it. Not every trans person wants medical support for transition, but for those that do, it's a life changer and often a life saver. So let's just take a moment and thank whoever or whatever you believe in that you do not have to navigate this terrain on your own. You're part of a community now, and there are parents who have been through it and well-trained therapists and endocrinologists who can help you and your family create a plan for whatever comes next. Now, take a deep breath. As we venture into the world of medical interventions, I have to start with a reminder to breathe. If at any point you find yourself feeling overwhelmed, do yourself a favor, hit pause, and take a breath before you continue. Muscling through the discomfort will just mean you have to listen to it again, because we do a really terrible job of taking information in when we are emotionally flooded. Our guest today is Dr. Karen Selva. Dr. Selva is the chair of the Pediatric Medical Executive Board at Randall Children's Hospital in Portland, Oregon, and the director of the Randall Children's Hospital T-Clinic. She's been rated a top doctor by Portland Monthly Magazine more than 10 times, and with good reason. I can't wait for you to meet her. I'm confident you'll adore her just as much as her patients and I do. Dr. Selva and I kept our conversation today focused on puberty suppression medication, and her approach to working with young transgender children and adolescents. You'll hear both what she does and doesn't do. And we'll hear all about other interventions later. Like not this episode, but like later episodes. I think one of the questions I really do want to ask you though, is about at what time should a parent start to think about coming in to see an endocrinologist? How do they know, okay, we're there? Okay, yeah. And that's a very common call to our clinic. It's, uh, it, where the kid just came out, might be six years old, and they type in on Google transgender care in Portland, Oregon, and hit our website and call our intake Clancy person. And uh, what do I do? What do I do? And, um, you know, we first always direct people to um, find some um, mental health support, ideally to come see me if they're young. 
I love establishing care prior to puberty, like around eight, seven, eight, nine years old, because it takes so much of the pressure off of meeting Mm -hmm. the doctor. Um, If there's any fear that the kid has in going to the doctor's office for whatever reason, shots or otherwise, we do nothing at that visit. We, We just meet. I don't even do an exam. We just, they get to see it that I'm, I'm not that scary. And um, and I do a lot of education and at that visit on what to look for for puberty so that you're prepared and it's not this big sense of panic when it does happen. We've, you know, I teach the kids the first sign and that's something we, we should talk about in the first sign of puberty, because mm-hmm. a lot of people think other things are the first sign of puberty that I'm not interested in acne and I'm not interested in body odor or pubic hair. I'm interested in either breast development or testicular enlargement, and especially testicular enlargement. They don't know that, and they're not checking. No. And, no. and the, especially the parents aren't checking, nor should they be. But I, right. I, I teach the kid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I teach the kids what to look for, and to tell their parents, and tell them what will happen when it does happen that I have to do an exam, and therefore it's not scary anymore. Right. You know, so when should they if if but not every kid comes out prior to puberty. So right. um, in in those cases where they're little, they're young, and they don't need medical intervention, I say, you know, do your thing and uh, move on, you know, work with your mental health provider and socially transition or do what's right for you in the school. But around for, for um, assigned girls at birth, um, eight can be a, a, t- a normal age for puberty to set art. It's not considered early and nine for natal boys. So um, that's when I would encourage them to come in. For anybody else who started puberty, in puberty, pubertal, and has gone through puberty, then it would be like we would see them to talk about options depending on where they're at and in and, and their development at that time, you know? Yeah. I think that one of the things that's really great with the, from the little kids that I've seen, oftentimes parents don't really talk to them about medical transition. You know, they, that's just mm-hmm. not a conversation that gets had. And there's a lot of anxiety that they hold, um, believe, especially if they've got older siblings um, and they sort of have watched this puberty progress in their older sibling. And they're like, oh God, I'm going to, that's what's going to happen to me. Um, and so... Uh, I think that I've I've encouraged parents with a, a seven or eight year old to be like, this is a really good opportunity for you to have a meeting with a endocrinologist and just talk about what could happen right. um, for them and how their puberty might look different. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's been really stress relieving for little kids. I've noticed. I I think so. I do think with those little guys. Um, I've noticed a difference in that their perception, because there's, you know, there's, and you may or may not have noticed a difference um, more with like the later, the the people who present later in their teens compared to those who identify really young. With those who identified really young, I almost have to do a lot more education because 
you know, I had I had one little girl who who firmly believed she would have a uterus and and would be able to carry a pregnancy. And yeah. and that was a heartbreaking conversation I had to have and and have her cry and kind of mourn and go through that. Like her parents never it never even came up with them. Like like, like they didn't talk about that in their d- discussions, but um obviously in a 15-year-old they're a little bit more in the know and they, they kind of know what's going on. But sometimes those, those conversations can be pretty tough and emotional with those, with those little guys. Yeah. That's a really, uh, a really good point. I have had a kid who is very similar, um, just mm-hmm. in their desire to be a mom and like sort of really just envisioning it and playing it. And then mm-hmm. that terribly sad day when mom said, well, that's not how it's going to happen for you. Right. Yeah. What do you mean? Yeah. 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 I do often say, though, you're very young and science is very fast these days. And who knows where we will be when you are ready to have a child? I don't think all hope is lost, you know, but right now, you know, because it's true. They're doing things in those labs that 10 years ago I never thought was possible. Right. Yeah. It's pretty impressive. It's impressive. Yeah. So sticking with the younger kiddos, um, why don't you just share about what do you look for as the signs of puberty that you know, okay, it's time for us to do something if we're going to do something. Right. Because so a lot, even just one step behind that, a lot of parents will ask, well, can't we just start? the suppressors, even if, if they're not in puberty yeah. um, and just prevent it from happening from the get go. And I'm like, well, we kind of want to know that they can go in puberty. I mean, it, it's a pretty big thing for your brain to turn on and, and go into puberty. So um, with the education and the things that I tell them to look for, we're going to catch it super early and we're going to catch it right at the beginning. And so that even those little changes that are happening if we catch it soon enough, they regress and they go away. So for someone who's assigned girl at birth, um, breast budding, chest budding is, is the thing that we looked for. And I am very, like, I have, you know, some of the people who have followed me, they're like, wow, you're just so I'm like, yeah, I'm talking about it. it we're Frank. I'm looking for pea sized nubbin under the nipple and it's going to be tender. And like, if you catch a ball, you're going to feel it. And uh, when that and you can't push it away, you you push down and and it, you you can't move it. It doesn't smush. Fat right. tissue smushes, and breast tissue doesn't. So when that happens, you call and we will we will have you come in and and I'll confirm. And then um, we get labs to confirm that your brain is turned on and turned on the two hormones LH and FSH, and that the estradiol is being secreted. And then we could pause it with the puberty suppressors. For someone who is assigned male at birth, it's testicular enlargement that is the key. And a lot of, you know, young people are not looking. Or if there's dysphoria, they don't want to look. They don't want to right? look, right? Yeah. Um, and so with that one, we have, um, but I tell them it's very important because if you catch it, uh, we use the M&M analogy. So peanut M&M size or smaller is prepubertal, not pubertal size. But if it gets bigger than a peanut M&M, and we're heading towards if there was an almond M&M, like a bigger size, mm-hmm. that's when we want to see 
won't want to see you and confirm and again get labs and then we can suppress it. And with that, the testicle size won't get any bigger. In fact, it may regress a little. And with the breast development, that because they're so small, they could regress and go go down to nothing. It's when they're more progressed that we don't see them go away as okay. much. So those okay. are the first two signs um, that that I'm most concerned with. And I tell them all, you're gonna get pubic hair, you're gonna get acne. You're gonna if your if your family history is you know uh, prone to acne, you're gonna get body odor, and everybody does. It doesn't matter who you are. So yeah. like that's part of it because some are like, well, they're getting hair. I thought that you know that's gonna happen. So the, those are the two big ones that we're looking for. And then when I describe puberty suppression medication to families, I generally describe it as a pause button. How do you exactly. describe it? Yeah. yeah, we don't have, I mean, I guess we do have pause buttons on our players and our um, Amazon Prime accounts, but I always press the button because I think of my boom box, when I, you know, on the tape deck, it's pausing. <laughs> yep, that's, that's my mental picture. I mean, and so what I've been telling, you know, we've been using these medications for over 50 years now in kids who have early puberty. And in endocrinology and what I do, we see kids who come in with puberty at five, six years of age. And and we all agree that's way too early psychologically. And puberty, if they went through it, it would it would stop their growth a lot sooner than it should. So we that's where they came up with these agents that are um it's, it's counterintuitive. They actually stimulate the pituitary at first to release those two hormones that cause puberty, but then the, the, the receptors get tired out. So we call it an agonist. Ah. So it, it keeps on um, stimulating them, and then they get tired out, and then they stop producing LH and FSH. So there's no more stimulation of the gonad, and so there's no more sex steroid. And so then as soon as you take that away, the... We call it an axis. The axis of the pituitary and the gonads wakes up again, and it would go right back into puberty where you left off at the same typical tempo. If they were further along in puberty, it might be a little faster than if they were just right starting puberty. But it's completely, we we say reversible. I mean, it, you know, it, the main thing is it, it is, it's just a pause button. It doesn't cause any, um, as far as we know, any long-term complications. Um, there, I do warn parents that if they Google it, they will see one study that came out probably four or five years ago. I think it's about then, maybe three years ago, um, that has not been repeated, but it was anecdotal studies of older people who had um, the suppressors for early puberty, for precocious puberty, and they had some bone issues with their jaw. And that has never been replicated or reported anywhere since. And it was just one cohort in California um, with Kaiser. And so it's out there, but we're not seeing it otherwise. And so at first we were all like, what are we doing? And then, you know, further investigation into long-term follow-up because all these companies with these drugs do do follow up. And um, we have not seen that um, be a long-term complication. So... I feel that they're very safe. And what I tell parents, if it was my child, I would feel very safe in giving them to my child. That's a really 
strong endorsement, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I have a daughter and a, and a son, and if they were, you know, going through the wrong puberty or if they were in puberty too early, I would definitely, I think this is the right thing to do. I agree. Mm-hmm. How long can a kid stay on blockers? Because I know some kids would like to just stay on them forever. Right. And some parents would love for them just to stay on them forever. Um, and however, puberty is very important. We all go through it, right? And so um, we have to have exposure to some form of sex steroid um, at some point in adolescence. So because we build our peak bone mass in later adolescence and early 20s. And by 25 for natal females, it's all downhill after that in terms of our bone density. Um, it's a little later for natal males. So I, um, it's funny, I just had a, a, a patient message today asking um, specifics about um, age, this exact question. And, it, and so I think there's two groups. In the kids who we start Right as puberty starts, um, you know, we catch it at the first sign and we suppress it and they're like nine or 10 or they're up to 12 or 13. Um, I would like them to see sex steroid by the time they're 16 um, because then because they went from, you know, on average age for for assigned female at, at birth is is um, ten years of age to start puberty, and average for assigned male is eleven. So that's like six or five years that they're not seeing anything, and right. their bones are not getting any denser. And we have our bones for our lifetime, and so um, and here in the Pacific Northwest, we're vitamin D deficient um, in general. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I just, you know, I just don't want anyone out there um, at risk for brittle bones. So um, we, I recommend that by the time they're 16, we're definitely talking about it if they, but in those guys, honestly, they're ready to start it earlier. And so we follow the guidelines. I, I say around 14, but um we're starting on, I would say, on average, 13, 13 and a half to keep them in line with their peers. Um, yeah. And there's 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 some outliers around that, some that are later and some that are earlier, but not the norm um, and different. Everyone's journey is different in that in that respect. Um, but then there's the people who go on puberty. So then there's the kids who go on puberty blockers, but have already been through some part of puberty. And so especially I don't we don't do this so much. And I think I speak for most practicing um, endocrinologists who do this, that if we're seeing um, a teenaged, uh, a firm male who's been menstruating for six years, we're not going to initiate a puberty suppressor. The cat is already out of the bag or the horse is out of the barn, however you want to say. I mean, they've been menstruating for many years. They've had all the changes that puberty is going to do. So stopping it or suppressing it isn't really going to yield that much benefit. And in fact, they're going to feel menopausal um, right. if we really drop that estrogen. And I, you know, I've had some kids who really wanted to try it and we did it and they're like, oh, my God, I'm not getting the next shot. That was horrible. Um, and we're that. and yeah, and we're not going to start cross hormones at high enough doses 
that if they were on, on Lupron or an implant, that it would bring them right up to uh, a pre, you know, pre-Lupron feeling in, in their sex steroids. So it takes a while to build that up. So I don't do that in in my affirmed males, but in my affirmed females, now they might be completely through puberty down below, Tanner five, done, but haven't started shaving yet. You know, and haven't seen um, a lot of the effects of testosterone. And in those kids, it's a very, you know, it's kind of a, it's a very clinical decision and one that I talk with them um, about because they might feel manopausal, like we're lowering testosterone pretty quickly, but without, without exposing them to more testosterone, if they haven't started shaving, then they might not have to, you know, so it really depends on, and that they can't control. That's totally genetics. That's like, you know, in their family history, if the men didn't start shaving till after high school or when they were 25, but then you have people like in my family who are Italian and start shaving in seventh grade. Like it really, right. you know, you can't control that part. But right. so in those kids and the, I've, I've several, you know, teenage from females who are on Lupron or a, a blocker and um, the question comes up, well, is it safe? What if we're not ready at 16? Well, they've yeah. already seen some hormone. So like those, that, that 16 cutoff, is it really it's more of a how long have you been on on blockers at that point yeah. that your bones would start to feel like they haven't seen any sex steroid. And we don't want that forever, obviously. But right. um, I would say, again, like five to six years, that's when we'd probably want to start thinking about adding something in so that your bones don't suffer. Okay. I think that... <clears throat> trying to run through my head here of like all the other questions that I get from parents in this like 12 year old range you know what I mean the, uh-huh, uh-huh. cuz that's yeah, a really yeah. common 11 I feel like is a really typical age for kids to come out that middle school um sort of puberty starts to really ramp up and they're like holy that's crap. we have two bumps in our new referral ages one is at at 10 11 and the other's 15 yeah those are the yeah. two most common ages yeah, I've looked at that. I'm glad to know that because I was like, am I making this up? It feels like no, the, this is where absolute... they enter. It's here mm-hmm. or here. Or here. Or mm-hmm. little. Right? Like, or the little. That's where yes. I see it. Little, mm-hmm. 10 or 11, 15. Agreed. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So what other things would you encourage families to consider for, well, let's just say like a 10 or 11 year old? Um, who comes in and they're interested in blockers or puberty mm-hmm. suppression medication? Oh, boy. So we talk about, and I'm sure you hear this too, um, it's given by injection, mm-hmm. ideally. And it's uh, now we have much, much many more choices um, it used to be one form, Lupron, and we kind of use Lupron as the overall medication name. But now there's some funky names like Fensolvi, there's uh, Eligard, and it used to be back in the olden days, Lupron was given monthly, monthly in the in the um, in the muscle, and they would come into the doctor's office for that shot every month. Now that's really 
not great for someone who's going to school and is involved in activities and whatnot. Um, so now it's every, typically every three months for Depo Lupron, um, Depo meaning it lasts longer. Then for the Fensalvi or the Eligard, one is every um, four months and one is every six months. They're all injections. So kids are like, I'm needle phobic. Do you get that all the time? I get that. I, so get much. I can't stand needles. I can't do needles. I'm like, I, see, I can't, can't do, do a needles. blood draw at the very least. Exactly. I can't do I can't do And yeah. oh the, um my my still my my guy keeps popping up every now and then. I don't know what's <laughs> One moment. Um so uh I you know what I tell them is I and maybe you're seeing it too. I mean, now I have two kids got my, I have a sixth grader who's just starting middle school and a ninth grader who's gone through middle school. They label everything. So if they don't like needles, they're needle phobic. And I say, well, I don't, I, I'd be surprised if you like needles, you know, no one enjoys getting a shot mm-hmm. and it's not comfortable. I give it to you, but you know what? Like, if you want to stop these changes from happening, this is what we're going to have to do. Um, and more matter of fact and not make a big deal about it. Um, so we talk about that. We talk about um, the monitoring of labs because we do need, for insurance purposes, we need to document that they're they're pubertal by labs. And yeah. so it is a lab draw. Again, the needle, the needle talk. And then there is a implant. There's two choices for implant. One is Ciprelin, which is FDA approved for children. And then there's Vantis, which is the exact same thing, which is not FDA approved for children, but is approved for adults, but is the exact same thing and is significantly cheaper. And so it's really, if they say we really want the implant, what I've actually been saying and telling everybody now, I used to say you have a choice and now you you don't for a lot of insurances. Insurance will say you have to start with the shot and fail the shot right. in order to get the implant. The implant lasts two years. So mm-hmm. you get one implant with the surgeon, um, plus minus if the kid can do it without sedation, great. If they need sedation, surgery will do it um, with a little light sedation. Um, but it's a quick procedure. Um, but for whatever reason. And I think taking Vantis out, the the price kind of equalizes over two years if you're getting shots versus um, the Histrelin implant for all the FDA approved pediatric indications. So why they approve the shots over the, I don't know, but we are very good at fighting for what people need and um, have been successful. And so um, Connie, my nurse, really knows how to address that. And if, and if it's really an issue for the kid, we say they can't handle the shots and therefore they failed and, and we'll move for the, for the implant. So it's really, unfortunately, um, it's insurance driven sometimes. Yeah. I've noticed that a lot. I wish that I could prescribe medicine the way I want to prescribe it and not have to you know, fit in their boxes. But that's a whole other discussion we can have sometime. Well, we can do a series on insurance. Insurance issues. Issues. I just, yes. I mean, the number of times I've rewritten things for insurance companies and called insurance companies and oh. things for insurance companies. It's I'm like, just tell me what words you want. That'd be great. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 I've had somebody, one time they wanted me to change like just two words in one sentence. And I was like, okay. 
Got my for eye what on you. Per- yeah, you yeah. Are. For what person? I went to school for this. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I just so keep did a I file answer of the rejection letters so that I can <laughs> reference them each time. I... <laughs> <laughs> okay, don't write it Who's this way insurance? and put it in. Okay, you know, phrase it. it that way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. You did. That was a great. That was a great. Answer. Um. The only other one I will talk about is the side effects. I mean, parents yeah. always want to know the side effects, and the side always. effect is they're not going to have puberty. That's the that's the ex- expected outcome, and that's what we're looking for. With the injection, there is it's not. I won't say it's um un. What do I want to say? It's not common, but I have seen it in my practice. I've been doing giving these shots now for 17, 20 years with fellowship, that you can get what's called an, a sterile abscess at the site of the injection. And so it looks like a big red, hot, you know, um, pustule that may need to be drained. It's very sore. But when they drain it, then it's not bact- it's not bacterial. It's what we call sterile. And so it's not like you need antibiotics you just need to it might need oh, okay. to be drained but what we found now out now over the years that's an allergic reaction and so you can't be on the shot that would be a failure for sure um if someone had that reaction i'd say i'd seen i've seen it three times that i can remember off the top of my head in 20 years that's pretty good mm-hmm. yeah so it's yeah. not like we we've never seen it but like i i don't see it that often okay and I think they're generally well tolerated. Yeah. Uh, it seems like when the timing is right, mm-hmm. they're well tolerated. Mm-hmm. My kids who've gone on them and have those menopause effects are like, nope, we're not doing this again. Yeah. It's nasty. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, what about um, for kids when they come in and they're like Tanner stage two, they go on a blocker um, and then they want to transition over to uh, testosterone or estrogen um, estrogen at whatever age because mm-hmm. that's a pretty common progression. That is the uh, progression, right? Yeah. They yeah. want to go through puberty with the cross hormone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what you get... Is- Okay. You get better effect with the eye. So, so when when this protocol first came out back in two thousand and nine, um, you know, with the Dutch protocol with using blockers, because this was very new back then, the idea was that this can buy buy more time because it puts that pause button on, and then it allows the family more time to kind of you know plan what's right for their kid. That is true. It, it very true because it's reversible. It does no harm, but I think that it also has the extra added benefit of giving better physical results because you are preventing their body going through that first puberty and permanent changes that happen that aren't easily overcome with cross hormones, and then it allows them to take those hormones as if it was their endogenous puberty, which we do as endocrinologists, there's conditions out there and reasons why we have to put people through puberty. Um, And so we know how to do that. We know how to do it, you know, serially increasing the estrogen doses and testosterone doses over a period of years, like it's not going to happen overnight. Um, And I think it gives better effect. 
So the common question, I think what you're asking is how long do they have to stay on the, the blocker once they're on, or do they stay on it when they're on cross hormones? And ideally, because I think they get better effect when they're not making any of their own hormones, I like to keep them on it until they're on adult doses of either estrogen or testosterone. And then um, once they're, they're at those adult doses and their levels are high enough, they will suppress their own LH and FSH with higher cross hormones. And then we could take the puberty blocker away. Um, several of my affirmed males have just stayed on the blocker until surgery because oh, yeah. they were going to go for surgery anyway. And we got up to adult dosing and it was just a matter of, you know, months or, you know, a year and they were just going to stay. They didn't want to chance it. And so yeah. I think that's fine too. Yeah. yeah. And that's part of it, right? Is trying to help families figure out what is the, what's the right path for them. Right. Because right? there's not, there are some clear paths, but not every person, not every kid goes down the same path. You know, a lot, there's so many Absolutely factors not. to consider. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. The other big thing that comes up, at least in my office, but I guess partially because I guess I bring it up <laughs> um, is the <laughs> the fertility stuff. Um, Absolutely. When kids are going to go, even when kids start out on a blocker and they're going to transition straight over, um, that's still a conversation I have even when they're 10. Um, exactly. And actually, and I should have brought this up when you say, what do you talk about when you go on blockers? Fertility is a big thing that I talk about, but it's like this whole section. Yeah. Yeah. And I usually bring it up and then I send them home and they, I'm like, we're going to talk about this and then we're going to talk about it again and I'm going to talk about it again. <laughs> and because I want you to be thinking about it and really processing mm -hmm. what I'm telling you as we kind of go through this. Yes. Um, so what do families need to keep in mind and consider? Um, in regard to fertility uh, when making decisions about um, blockers and hormones? So we're preventing in, in, um, in these little kids, we're preventing their, um, in, in, in terms of the natal boys in, in assigned male at birth, those testicles from maturing and from producing sperm. And so they're just kind of like resting in their little prepubertal state. And so they, you have to have a certain progression through puberty. Um, they say at least 10 or two, if not 10 or three, to produce sperm that are viable and motile and, and kind of matured enough that could fertilize an egg. Mm -hmm. And so I, I have the conversation that we're going to stop this from happening and at this point in time, in 2021, we are not routinely, you know, storing testicular tissue right now. You read about it and people ask, well, can I do this? And well, in theory, yeah, but it's not being offered <laughs> and it's cost prohibitive and it's yeah. like research only. So like, no, <laughs> yeah. um, I wish I could tell you it was commercially available and you could do it and it would be relatively easy, but it's not. Um, we offer everybody to, to have a conversation with a reproductive endocrinologist who can talk about what they're seeing later in adults. Um, and now they're seeing more people who have gone through 
you know, they're seeing them on the adult side of some form of pubertal suppression and depending on where they were in their adolescence when they started it. And if they're, you know, and seeing what the options are there, the ones that are little and are, are and are, so that's, I, I'm talking affirm females um, that I have sent over to repro uh, endo. Um, it's been a pretty consistent message from them and that, and I, and I agree that, you know, we're asking a 10, 11 year old to comment or even process how they feel about being a parent. <laughs> and I think it's a lot to ask of anybody. Um, and like I said, too, some of them think they're going to be moms and, and they're anticipating delivering a baby through a vagina that's going to happen at some point. We have to have that conversation. So it's um, the, I think the risk of in, in those kids who really know who they are and their body would change and it would cause them so much dysphoria that that's a, a greater risk to that child than blocking the puberty. And like I said, who knows where we're going to be in 10, 15 years. And that's what he says. Like they're doing things in that lab where they may be able to take that tissue that's still, it's preserved. You know, it's, it's still prepubescent, grow it in a Petri dish and produce sperm. It's not out of the question that that could be done in our lifetime, you know, in that kid's time where they will be at the age where that is something to do. 20 years from now. You know, who knows? They might, you know, they're 30, want to start a family. Who knows? Um, Hands down, when I bring up fertility, every kid says, yeah, I'm going to adopt. You know, (laughs) uh, like, and I'm like, are are you just telling me that? You know, it's okay if you have these feelings that you think you might want to have a kid. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about the, the loss you might feel. But it's a very hard to, and I think that as a parent would be very difficult because, we're not going to allow those testicles to get older and mature. And then we're going to introduce estrogen. And then we don't know exactly, you know, what we know from the older kids is that their mature testes don't necessarily bounce back after being exposed to estrogen in terms of producing sperm. Um, So, you know, I think that we're having a very serious conversation about you know, we just don't know what will be available to you. And I can't promise anything, but I think the risk of not doing this for your kid could lead to really serious mental health issues. And we have the ability. And, and I, and I also think those littles, there's a difference. They know, I don't worry about them desisting or whatever word you want to call it, retransitioning or changing their mind or I think those are the kids where I am feeling most comfortable that this this is what they are and, and this is what we need to do to affirm them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, for girls, for for uh, assigned female people with ovaries, I use all these different terms. Um, I know, I do too. The, the difference um, with them is that, you know, we have as many eggs as we're going to have. Um, And so there is, you know, it it is happening in um, cancer kids where there, there, there's even when I was in training talk of preserving egg and ovarian tissue prior to like full body or bone, bone marrow transplant or full body irradiation or whatever they had to go through um, to preserve their, their ovarian tissue for use later. And I think that is more of a option you know, for, for, um, people with ovaries, um, 
And in fact, if you ask OHSU, I have asked, they do it. They do it. But insurance doesn't cover it. And it costs yeah. thousands and thousands of dollars. So like, do I encourage people to go do it? No, I don't. Um, and I think that the, it's a big process too. You know, it's it's invasive. It's not like banking yeah. sperm when, you know, you can just produce a sample. It's a, a lot more um, intense. Um, so, but the ovaries are very resilient. And so um, I don't know as much with the them who the affirm males who have been on puberty blockers and then testosterone is introduced and they go through a typical male puberty and then later well actually i think oh i would educated guess is that if they wanted to reproduce their chances are pretty good because we are seeing that trans males out there in adulthood are getting pregnant on testosterone if they're yeah. not taking birth control, are carrying um, babies and, and doing well in pregnancy, are chest feeding if they have chest tissue to feed with. Um, you know, Tristan has got that amazing website and blog out there, mm -hmm. and I've heard him speak on his experiences of having a family. And I think that, and now we have studies looking at it. You know, there's actually published data. So... Those ovaries are pretty damn resilient. And I think that, you know, the chances for fertility in that population is a little bit um, better if, if it's something that they want. I don't yeah. know how many people want it because all of them tell me they don't want to have kids. It's very few that, that have said. It's very rare for a kid mm -hmm. to, to not lead with. I just want to adopt. Um, right. Whenever I bring up that conversation. Sometimes they're like, no, I really do want to have kids. And I think that I'm going to have to get, you know, reproductive uh samples for my brother or whatever in order to so be they've able thought to do about this. Mm -hmm, yeah they've mm -hmm, sort of thought mm -hmm. it through um the other thing that i try to normalize um when i talk with families about reproduction is that lgbtq population doesn't typically have babies the way that the heterosexual heterosexual population does anyway um right? their families are created differently and that's a beautiful and valid for a way to form a family um Absolutely. and so having a kid who cannot carry um or pass genetic material to a child um does not make that kid any less their child or them any less of a parent that's right mm -hmm. absolutely yeah. mm -hmm. it's a really actually a really good segue i wanted to ask you about non-binary kids um because there's this big idea among parents like oh there's no options for a non-binary kid i don't know what to do for my non-binary kid um or should i do anything for my non-binary kid um or since my kid's non-binary certainly they wouldn't want testosterone or estrogen. Mm -hmm. yeah no they don't they don't need that that's not for mm -hmm. them that's for the re-binary kids um <laughs> non-binary binary uh yeah and you know at the beginning, uh, when I started doing this, it was very binary that we had, mm -hmm. you know, like with the first set of guidelines, probably you too, um, you know, and then more and more kind of people were coming to T-Clinic um, who identified as non-binary, not really knowing what do I want, you know, or, or and then, then 
reading Dr. Google and Dr. Reddit and um, mm-hmm. all of their, you know, blogs and posts and everything that they, they, they kind of wanted. It, it was more of a, some wanted an a la carte menu. Like I want this effect of estrogen, but I don't want that effect of estrogen. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I'm like, well, th- th- I c- we can't do that. You know, that was education. Um, and what I what I find now um, for non-binary littles, I'm not seeing too many, like pre-puberty. I don't know if you are, but like I see more non-binary older kids. It's more common in older, older kids te- for sure. Maybe I've, 13, 14-ish yeah, and older. I've seen a couple of little kids and they usually start to start, like they come in, they're like, well, I think I might be trans. Um, and they'll try out the binary transition pronouns, whatever it is, the, mm-hmm. the she, her, or the he, him, and they're like, that doesn't really feel right. And then, uh, then I, it's usually, I'm the one that's like, well, you know, there's this other thing. Um, yeah. and they're like, what? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is sort of the, the mad, then they're like, oh, that's what it is. Okay, cool. I'm that mm-hmm. one. That one works. <laughs> um, that's it. There's more than just three, but that's fine. We'll just right. let it let it simmer, I guess. I guess so. what I'm what I'm not seeing is a ton who are on pubertal suppression, and then we have to kind of figure out what to do for puberty. I think I have one. Um, but the majority two right now. I think. Yeah, it's not like a common. The majority is is teenagers um, who have had some element of of puberty. And I think that, you know, I talk uh, um, to my um, people with ovaries that, well, you can have testosterone um, at a lower dose if you want certain effects of it. I mean, I can't, you can't pick and choose. And it's all dependent on your genetics and your family history and what, you know, how you're going to respond. I have some kids who responded to low dose testosterone, like, and, had like hobbit feet and like really like tons of body hair and like yeah. I'm like I'm sorry come from a hairy family like I can't change that <laughs> yeah. um that one sticks out because they're like look at my toes <laughs> my favorite um, is the kids that come in they're like did you know I was gonna get butt hair yeah I knew mm-hmm. sorry <laughs> can't too much yeah just have to address that in other ways. But um, so, you know, but I have had several kids who um, request to do low dose testosterone to a desired effect and then stop. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm okay with that. Whereas honestly, when I first started, I don't know how okay I was. I wasn't that. I'll be honest. I wasn't that okay with that because it was just like, what am, what is this? Like catered whatever. But now that I've had such a much better understanding from doing this over the years and getting a better sense of what gender, you know, that there is a continuum and that that it's not, you know, I think when I first started out, I was like, I just, you know, I just didn't get it, but now I do. And same thing with um, estrogen or more importantly, like androgen blockers, receptor blockers that using spironolactone or biclutamide, like using those and I am amazed at some of the effects I see, just some feminizing um, without, you know, using over estrogen without without blocking your your puberty. But you can get definite softening of features and um, much more so than I see in my like 
in my endocrine clinic for polycystic ovarian syndrome for, you know, cisgender females who don't want these changes with um, too much male hormone that their body is producing. And we'll use spironolactone. And usually it doesn't work that great. Like we're not seeing such an improvement in, 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 in them, but I do with um, people with testes. So I think it's a discussion. And like we've talked about, you know, and I say every path is different. And if Mm -hmm. you choose that you want to try something and you say you don't want it anymore. Okay. I'm okay with that. You know, I don't view that as a failure. I don't view that. That's just where you, we did, we, we did what was right for you at the time. And then we're going to stop it when you want to stop it. And I will say that I have like probably maybe five that I can think of off the top of my head, maybe a little more. Um, Affirmed males gone through testosterone therapy, got up to adult dosing, completely, you know, have, have all the effects that they want, the, the voice lowering, the facial hair, pass, you know. Um, yeah. And then they're like, yeah, I don't want to take it anymore. I got the effect because they're permanent. They're not going to change. I mean, maybe the, the beard growth will slow down. And I'm like, so are you deep? No, no, no. I, I, I'm still Oscar. I am, you know, I just don't want to take testosterone anymore. I go, well, what are we going to do about those periods? And they're like, yeah, let's talk about that because <laughs> they don't want the periods either, <laughs> but, which is fine, which we can totally handle. But, um, you know, so, uh, yeah, like I, it's just very individual. Yeah, that's a question I get from parents sometimes. It's like, does that mean that this that we're gonna have to be on this forever? Um, and I'm like, no. It really depends on what your goals for transition are and what feels right and what feels, mm-hmm. you know, we we sort of take it in stride. Um, and gender sometimes shifts, and sometimes, you know, you get the permanent effects that you're looking for, and you're done. Yep. Yep. Um, but most of the time, people do continue to take it. <laughs> because if you still want the effects consistently, you're not, and that's what I say, we, we haven't figured out how to get you to make it. So we're yeah. just giving you what you can't make. So right. that's what I do. That's my job. I give you people hormones that they can't make on their own. So yeah, that was a long-winded answer for, for not. That's okay. I really, one of the things I guess, I'm not really sure how to word my question or if there's even a question in here that I'm more just thinking out loud. Um, but what you said, I'm just giving you the hormones that you, your body can't make. Um, so often I see parents who are clearly still seeing their child as if they were a science sex at birth female they're still seeing a girl going through testosterone and they don't, they're not seeing it as a son, right? They're not Mm. seeing it as a boy, right? And they, so they still see it as like, we're going to give testosterone to my girl. Daughter. Not, Mm -hmm. yeah, to my daughter, not my son can't produce testosterone. Mm. Um, And so we need to go to endocrinology because my son can't produce it on his own. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to start and using that when I talk. That's to yeah, that's a good point, and and I, I think it takes some time for the parents to get there. Yeah, totally, absolutely. And you've talked about that in your podcast, like you know, and and that's a different journey for everybody. Some mm-hmm. parents are like, okay, I've been waiting for this. 
<laughs> you know, like, when yeah. were you going to tell me? You know, I had one recently, ironically, like they're in the neighborhood and I know them. And the mom was like, I was just waiting for her to tell me. Like, I knew it was coming, but I wasn't going to, you know, she had to come to the decision on, you know, had to bring it up on her own terms. And yeah, and the mom was more than ready. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's a different path for every parent. Yeah, and I often level. tell parents, like, you're going through something totally different than your kids go through. Um, and I'm way different, which is why and the podcast is killer. That's it's why I needed the podcast, right? Because the podcast, kids are doing their yeah. thing and they get their support, but they really, parents really need that support too. Um, and it mm-hmm. needs to be talked about and like, it needs to be okay for us to navigate that and for it to be hard and to talk about the feelings. Sad. And yeah, to, the grief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The grief. And I, I think, too, like when they call and the kid is five and, oh, my God, my kid just came out. What do I do? I think the biggest thing you could do is find someone who supports you. More so for the parents, because the kid's fine. Like, they, <laughs> let me dress like I want to dress and wear, play the toys that I want to play with and, you know, get a haircut and or let my hair grow. But like yeah. it's that the parents, I think need the support more at that time than the kid does honestly yeah and i think about you know parents who've spent their entire childhood and adult life still trying to please their parent their parent right and then Mm -hmm. here comes this kid who's like yo (laughs) i'm gonna throw you all off here (laughs) and you got like their parent who's like oh my god we have to we're gonna displease everybody um, and that mm-hmm. sort of like internal shame that happens with just oh, not yeah. have, being able to be the quote unquote perfect child that Family. maybe they've been striving to be their entire lives. It's so complicated. It is. Um, There's a lot, a lot of feelings that go into that. Yeah. A lot of feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I find that the parent pieces. I want to say just as valuable. Um, part of me wants to say more, like I spend more work on parents than I do on kids oftentimes. I bet. Um, I feel like I do. I do a lot. The kids already know what they want. The yeah. parents are, uh, of course, they're they're worried about side effects. They're worried about regret. A oh, lot, you know, a big one. Big one. Are they going to regret this? How can I be sure, you know? What do you <laughs> say to that when they when they ask that question? I say that I've had, I've been lucky enough to have, and one of them was Laura's patient who went back to Laura, and I heard about the story, who their words detransitioned, um, and and two kids came out, came back to me, like in the news, like one contacted me and needed a letter because now he was joining the army, used to be she. And the other one went back and talked to Laura, and, and that was one that really kind of threw us for a loop because amazingly went to MIT, was seen at Fenway, was going to get surgery, um, gender-affirming surgery, mm-hmm. uh, female surgery, um, and uh, and then kind of changed their mind. And, um, and so parents or will ask and I and I, I'm a- actually happy I have a, a a couple examples. You know what I mean where I can say they don't 
they're not, neither one was regretful of what they went through. Neither one, they both talked about that they would probably have chest surgery, which made us feel a little bad as providers, but they weren't, they were like, we did what was right for me at the time. And, um, you know, this is what's right for me now to, to go on this, you know, at this path. I had one recent in the past year who was an affirm male. Um, I, I was doing virtual visits, um, in I think central Oregon somewhere with this kid and his family. And then he told me, I, I think he was only on testosterone for probably like a month or two and then decided to come off. And I, I can't remember the exact words he used, but he's like, Doing that at that point in time saved my life. Like that's where I was and that's what I needed. And it helped me get through a really hard time. And now I'm in a different place and I, I'm not there anymore. And that's how I, I view it. Like we're doing the best we can with what we got now. And we know that these kids have a higher rate of mental health issues and suicide thoughts and attempts. And that's what I'm trying to stop. Yeah. And so for I, me, the mental health piece really plays a big part. And um, I don't want to, I don't want to present any additional barriers. You know, I, I've been told like, um, not a lot, but I talk so frankly and openly about hormones because it's what I do mm-hmm. that I was perceived as pushing them. And, and I don't want to be perceived that way but I, I don't want to be a barrier either like and I want to have the frank butt hair conversations and talk about feeling testicles and them being M&M size and it not be weird with me because this is why you're coming to see me as a doc you know what I mean and so um yeah so yeah, I, yeah. I try to I try to really you know and then for the ones who've been on testosterone and totally have transitioned and then say they don't want to take it anymore. And I'm like, and that's okay too. You know, like there's a lot of different paths. So I just try to, to affirm them where they are right now. And, and I understand they're trying to make the best decision for their kid. Um, I've struggled with, in fact, I think Clancy and I are both struggling with a set of parents now who have a 15 year old who is on suppression started a little later, um, but are not ready for them to have cross-hormone therapy because they haven't socially transitioned at home. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing. And they're like, if they would just socially transition, then we would feel better about this as parents. And I think, and I have to respect them as parents and that they're like, we want to hold off on hormones. And I'm like, it's a family. I mean, I want parents to be on board hands down. Yeah. I go, but how's the kid? How's the kid dealing with this this decision? I worry about their mental health because I don't want to be an extra barrier. You know what I mean? And yeah. that's my only concern. And so we're chipping away at things. But Yeah. I think that one of the things that I've started to talk with parents when they bring up, we don't want them to regret this. Um, like, that is a common phrase in my office. And oh, same. Um, m- my response is, um, what's wrong with regretting things? Um, do haven't we, we all, all done something? Haven't we all done something? Haven't we all learned lessons 
mm-hmm. right? Haven't we all, I mean, painful lessons maybe, but we've all, we all have them. Mm-hmm. And what I wouldn't want to regret is ruining the relationship with my kid because they didn't think that I believed or trusted them. And how they feel about themselves. And how they feel about themselves and how they know themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think a thing that has resonated with me and I pass on, I give a lot of talks to primary care physicians and, mm-hmm. and, and a big thing in is that they want to know is how can we be more welcoming in, in the office? And, um, okay. I mean, we talk about the front office and all that stuff, but I'm like, one thing I'm like, is your words really matter? And don't assume, you know, that kid's body better than they know themselves. If you don't agree with it, you think it came out of nowhere, keep it to yourself. It's not for you to judge. It's just go with it. And and I think that'll just produce so much more trust between you and your patient. And they'll feel safe confiding in you if you just honor how they're feeling. And if it changes later, you don't say, I told you so. You just kind of go with that too, you know. Um, and it's hard. I get it, you know. But And, and the same thing goes for parents too, mm-hmm. you know. Just like my son has to label everything, I'm just going with it because it's like, I think, you know, who knows what's going to come yeah, out of the pipe. My, I feel like my my parenting experience has set me up really nicely for this whole labeling universe um, and the work that I do with teens because my son is, um, uh, my nine-year-old is on the spectrum. Um, and so everything is, this is how it is. And um he's very rigid and um if he's got an idea fixed in his head um and you're trying to explain to him like actually that's not how it is uh you're just going to get nowhere um but if you can just roll with it and be like oh okay so that is what this is right and i got it your dinner is uh thick and hard um you don't like it that's okay and you don't you don't like your dinner um because it's Mm -hmm. thick and hard and that part is sour (laughs) And that part has a spot, right? Like, let's forget that it, that's what it looks like when it comes out of a pan. Um, then we can, like, if I can see it truly from his perspective, right? It's not like taking my perspective and looking at it and trying to, like, apply my perspective. It's like, I'm really trying to see it from his perspective. Can I help you? You have to what? It's pork, honey. I was joking. You don't like it? Then you have to have something with protein. Yeah. (laughs) Talking about that. Do I have to eat the liver? Because I I joked. I'm like, I'm going to make you eat liver and onion. (laughs) And and it's a a pork tenderloin. And she loves pork. She's like, I don't like it. Like, you have to Uh eat something else because she survive on carbs. But anyway. I, I think I had that exact same conversation earlier tonight when my son was like, my dinner is thick. <laughs> and I was like, okay, tell me about what's thick about it. Like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And I have a, my son is a vegetarian and we are not. So like I have to do like today we had pork tenderloin and I made him a, you know, beyond burger, you know, mm-hmm. separate, like I have to do the separate thing, which is just. It's my favorite. It's kind of exhausting. Ever since sixth grade. It's like three years of this now. I'm like, I thought really this wasn't going to last a year. I should have just 
my daughter, my six-year-old, seven-year-old um, daughter, um, six, almost seven, um, is also a vegetarian. Oh, yeah. And she's been that way since she was like three, where we gave her turkey and she put together that turkey was the bird. And she said, no are more. you giving me a dead animal to eat? <laughs> um, and I said, yes. And it's delicious. delicious. Uh, and Happy Thanksgiving. Like, <laughs> she was like, I am not eating dead animals. animals. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and ever since then, that girl has steadfast. Not... Mm -mm. Except for wow. one exception. Bacon. bacon. Of course. It's, kinda... it's good. Mm -hmm. Who can deny yeah. Yeah, she's like, oh, it's bacon? I'm like, it's a pig. It's dead pig. <laughs> she's like, it's good. I'm like, oh, I was okay. dead anyway, whatever. It's no one's, no one's gonna, uh -oh. not coming back to life now, but I don't need mm -hmm. it. So, mm -hmm. um, Anyway, I do want to, um, I'm going to wrap this up because I, yeah. uh, and I would love to talk more if you're willing. Um, I'm so willing. I feel like there's and... so much and um so much to talk about and uh like think more things are going to come up too so as you listened to my conversation with dr selva i would imagine your brain was firing off all kinds of questions so here's what i want you to do write them down and send them to me at camp at wildheartsociety.org i will answer them i swear i tried to ask dr selva the most common questions i get asked when families are headed into this here are the takeaways from this conversation that I hope stick with you. One, it's great to take your kid to the endocrinologist earlier than puberty so that you can start developing a relationship with your doctor. It'll take out the fear later. Two, puberty blockers aren't an option until a child reaches Tanner stage two of puberty, which means no five-year-olds. Three, not all insurance companies cover blockers, so it's good to check with yours. Four, not all kids want or need puberty blockers. Five, puberty blockers are basically a pause button on puberty and your endocrinologist will work with you to time pubertal development appropriately. And finally, all of us professionals, all of those parents who've been through it, know that this part is not easy and we really want to help you through it if that's what you need. Thank you so much for joining us and for all your hard work, especially the invisible work that you do for your kids. I'm so grateful for all you do. Thank you so much to Dr. Selva for all the work she is doing and has done and will continue to do to support gender expansive youth in the future. All of us here at Camp Wildheart, listeners and counselors are here to support you. There are lots of ways to reach out to us. We're on the Facebook and the Instagram as Wildheart Society. If you've got a question you want us to answer or a story just about a beautiful moment of your own affirming family, don't hesitate to email us. Again, that's camp at wildheartsociety.org. If you're in need of a therapist or looking for someone to walk with you through this journey, please check out wildheartsociety.org. We have a team of 13 therapists who are all ready and willing to support families through this process. Thanks again for showing up here and for your kids. I appreciate you more than you can possibly know. Be sure to subscribe for free to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes and give us a rating. Rating the podcast helps people find us, and we want to make sure that anyone who needs one knows there's a bunk for them at Camp Wildheart. Take care, y'all.